is Our American Stories, and we always enjoy a good-hearted and old-fashioned prank once in a while. And we call these our Americana segments because Americans, well, in their spare time, in our spare time, we do all kinds of crazy stuff. We love visiting, for instance, the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, there's a guy who actually became the Philly fanatic, and then when he retires, he's thinking, well, we need a Mascot Hall of Fame. And that's what he does with the rest of his life. And God bless him for doing it because it's fun. And Americans love to have fun. And I think no other country likes to have fun like we do. Most of us on our team love the show Impractical Jokers. And by the way, we love to just crack jokes on each other. This is not a place to come in if you don't have a, a, a good, healthy ego. This is not a place to come to work. But not all pranks are created equal. In our ever-increasing litigious society and our hypersensitive society, some pranks can get you in a lot of trouble. Every year around graduation time, we hear news stories about senior pranks gone wrong. 18-year-old Nick Falk pleaded not guilty in Delaware County Municipal Court this morning to two charges, inducing panic and disorderly conduct. The misdemeanor charges come after Falk, who police say dressed from head to toe in black spandex, entered Westerville Central High School Friday and released seven chickens into the commons area. A senior prank say district officials that involved another student and 12 chickens in all. Five boys say they were at first told they could no longer participate in graduation activities. They thought it would just be funny, but the three boys brought, five boys brought three chickens here to school this morning, and one student captured some video of the incident on a cell phone. New at six, seniors at Slinger High School did a good one today, pulling off an unusual prank. They hired a mariachi band to follow their principal around for two hours. Thursday evening, Justin and 19 other seniors got into the school with a key, his father says, came from another parent. They decked the halls in toilet paper, wrote class of 2013 on windows with shoe polish, and left furniture in odd, unexpected places. And so on and so forth. And if you've been in high school or you just had some time to kill, well, that's when the pranks can start. And while we can't condone this kind of behavior, you've got to admit it's kind of funny. But letting chickens go inside of a school is peanuts compared to this next one. This is a prank of such epic proportion that it made world news overnight back in the 1970s. Our grand producer extraordinaire, most high in charge of the universe, brings us the story of a prank so devious, the tale will warm the hearts of men and women for generations to come. Here's Jesse. This is the story of one of the greatest pranks of all time. Oliver Porky Bicker was born November 1st, 1923 in Cialis, Washington, as a young man, he fought in World War II and took part in the D-Day invasion of Normandy, for which he was later awarded the Normandy Medal of the Jubilee of Liberty by the French government. That's a mouthful. Married with three kids, the family moved to Sitka, Alaska in 1960, where Porky was working for a logging company. In 1964, he started his own business, Porky's Equipment, Inc., selling and servicing logging gear. Woohoo! You see, Porky was a very talented logger and was famous for the ending act he performed every year at the All-Alaska Logging Championships. He could cut down a tree and make it land wherever he wanted to. But our friend Porky here was best known as a prankster, a reputation he enjoyed even before this next stunt. Some of his pranks included using a backhoe to drop an entire tree in the middle of a friend's driveway or placing plastic flamingos in trees to confuse tour boats looking for wildlife. 
But it was the eruption of Mount Edgecombe that made Oliver Porky Bicker a legend throughout Alaska and the world. When he awoke that cold April morning, he looked out his window and could see right across the sound. The idea to ignite the volcano had occurred to Porky three years earlier. Soon as he had the idea, he collected 70 old tires that he kept in an airplane hangar. He waited all this time until the visibility conditions were just right for the prank. Porky also secured the assistance of some of his fellow prankster friends, part of a group calling itself the Dirty Dozen that used to meet every week for coffee. As the pranksters waited for the chopper, they piled the tires in two large canvas slings. Soon the pilot arrived and they attached the slings to the bottom of the chopper. They also took along some smoke bombs, several gallons of kerosene, and some rags. Now in the very center of a giant dormant volcano crater at the top of Mount Edgecombe in Sitka, Alaska, the men piled the tires into a stack, poured the kerosene, and lit them on fire. As thick black smoke began to bellow skywards, the crew got back in the chopper and headed home. The deed was done. Residents of Sitka, Alaska woke on Monday, April 1st, 1974 to a bright, clear, crisp day. They could see right across the Sitka Sound where the familiar sight of Mount Edgecombe, the dormant volcano, dominated the skyline. But today, something was a little different about the view. A menacing plume of black smoke was rising from the crater. It looks as if the volcano is ready to explode! People spilling out of their homes and into the streets to gaze up at the smoldering volcano. The Coast Guard ordered a chopper to be sent out to investigate immediately. Get to the chopper! As the Coast Guard pilot approached Mount Edgecombe, the plume of smoke grew in size. Finally, he was right above it, and he peered down into the crater. At first, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. He looked closer, and then he laughed. Stacked in the cone of the volcano, burning with a greasy flame, was a huge pile of old tires. And spray painted in the snow beside the tires, in 50-foot-high black letters, were the words, April Fools! The prank succeeded beyond Porky's wildest dreams, and news of it got picked up by the Associated Press and ran in papers around the world. Even the Coast Guard wasn't too mad about the stunt. The reaction of the people in Sitka once they realized the volcano wasn't really erupting was almost uniformly positive. That is the story of Oliver Porky Bicker and the eruption of Mount Edgecombe. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Now I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I'm gonna go when the volcano blows. Let me say it now. I don't know.
is Our American Stories, and it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And on this day in history, in 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. And our own Alex Cortez brings us this epic story. World War II ends, and the time comes for dividing up Germany. What people forget is the sheer amount of devastation that occurred to the Russian Empire that U.S. can't relate to. 20 million civilians were killed in Russia in World War II. The U.S. just doesn't have anything to, to, to go with that. American loss of life was one and a half percent of this. And that, while it doesn't justify, it explains the Russian mentality when it came to land that they felt they had literally earned with their blood. These Soviets, our next and immediate existential enemy, got the eastern half of Germany and the eastern half of its capital, Berlin. And a lot of folks focus on the giants involved in this epic struggle. Reagan, Thatcher, Pope John Paul, Pape Yushko. And rightfully so, we've told all of their stories on this program. But today, we decided to bring you the stories of everyday Americans who were inside of the enemy territory of the USSR and experienced that infamous wall of theirs. And for this first person, the lack of a wall. For before it fell, it had to go up. And he, Peter Wolf, who wasn't born in America, was one of the reasons why. We lived in East Germany. And in about 1954, the government changed their currency. And that was to avoid people saving their money. So people were able to submit a certain amount to the banks to get it exchanged. But if it was more than a certain amount, they weren't supposed to have in the first place, you know, weren't supposed to hoard money at home. And all of that lost its value overnight. And that caused a lot of dismay among a lot of people, loss of hope. And it also caused a lot of problems in our family because we were planning to use some of those saved funds to escape East Germany and go to the West because you needed money to bribe people. And my father died shortly after that. He was very distraught over it and died a tragic death. And my mother then took my 16-year-old sister to West Germany across the border between East Germany and West Germany. His mother left him behind, her 10-year-old son, with a neighbor, because to take both of her kids would have been too suspicious of an escape. It was still a little bit porous at that time, but in the process of going across, they were shot after by soldiers, but they did make it. And then my mother returned by herself to East Germany get me. Now leaving her 16-year-old daughter alone in West Berlin to fend for herself. Because she didn't come back with my sister, she was interviewed by the police for days and pretty much labeled a traitor to the state for allowing her 
teenage daughter to leave the country. At that point, life became very difficult for us. And about four years later, on Christmas Eve of 1959, I was playing with some friends downstairs, and when I came upstairs, there was a suitcase on the bed, a small suitcase. And when I asked her what the suitcase was for, she said, well, tonight we're leaving. She had forged all of her documents and made plans to leave that night. She told me to go back downstairs to uh, say goodbye to my friends, and of course I couldn't tell them anything about us leaving. And in the process of forging the documents, she hoped to have eliminated a mark that the authorities had placed in her documents, which prohibited her to get anywhere near the border. So she was restricted not to ever come closer than 20 kilometers or so to the border. And if she were caught, she would automatically go to jail. Frequently, people like that were not only taken to local jails, but sent off to the gulags in Russia. So she took a lot of, lot of risk, hoping that the forgery didn't include the mark that she was trying to get rid of in the first place. That evening, we took our little suitcase and left our town. Then in Berlin, we caught a subway. And this was all timed and very carefully choreographed by my mother, because in the meantime, neighbors wondered where we were, and there was one particular person that wanted to report us to the local police if anything suspicious ever happened, which was one of the consequences of living there. You know, neighbors would cheat on neighbors. But anyway, we went into this subway and we bought a ticket from the eastern zone of Berlin to another place in the east further ahead. In the process of going to that other stop in East Berlin, there was one location, one stop, that the train made in West Berlin. And the plan was to get off there. Prior to that stop, the train stopped and Russian soldiers came on board. One soldier came on, uh, stood in the front of the train, and another one in the back with machine guns. And I was about 14 years old at the time. So I remember that very distinctly. A senior officer came through and looked at everybody's paperwork. There was a couple in front of us. He interrogated them. And then after he gave their paperwork back to them, the couple sighed and kind of smiled at each other with a sigh of relief. And the senior officer mumbled in Russian, I wonder what they're laughing about. I spoke fluent Russian at the time because it was mandatory in school. And he noticed that I understood what he was mumbling. So he asked me if I speak Russian, in Russian. Now my mother told me not to speak to that person at all and let her do all the talking. But I answered yes in Russian, da and he continued to talk in Russian to me. My mother didn't speak any Russian, and my mother was petrified and squeezed my hand unbelievably hard. And he said, I wonder what these young people are laughing about. 
and he said, maybe we should find out why they're so happy. And he motioned to one of his soldiers to escort the couple out. They never came back. And then he proceeded to take my mother's papers. And I told him that I had a pen pal in Russia, in Russian. And again, my mother was petrified and squeezed my hand. And he looked at the papers and talked to me a little bit longer and complimented me on my Russian and then gave the papers back to my mother and moved on to the next couple. Of course, we didn't laugh at each other and sigh like the other couple did. Eventually, that senior soldier left the train. The other soldiers with their machine guns left as well. And the train moved, and the next stop was West Berlin. We then went upstairs to a policeman and asked where the fugitive camp was, and he directed us to that. And one other thing that I often mention is the night that we escaped on Christmas Eve, here I was among 200 other people in bunk beds. Men would snore and children were crying and mothers were consoling their children. It was quite a hectic night there. And I think I must have cried myself to sleep as well because I felt kind of sorry for me that here it was Christmas Eve and I didn't get any presents. So it wasn't until I lived for several years in America that I realized that my mother that evening perhaps gave me one of the most choicest blessed presents that any parent could ever give their child. And of course, that was the freedom, the gift of freedom that we found once we came to America. And we mentioned that Peter Wolf was one of the reasons why the Berlin Wall went up. More accurately, he was one of the millions of reasons why, because between 1.5 and 4 million people escaped the communist East to the free West until the Soviets finally said enough. This story, this remarkable story, continues after these short messages on this day in history. The Berlin Wall falls in 1989. is Our American Stories, and we continue our celebration of the fall of the Berlin Wall on this day in history in 1989. Let's return to Alex. We now bring you the stories of two native-born Americans and their experience within the Iron Curtain and its wall. Am I mother's side, they were Finnish Karelians. And so when the Red Army came through in late 1939, they were (laughs) right in the wrong place. And my grandmother actually claims to have shot six Russians in the course of the war and 
finished the wartime service by clobbering a German soldier who uh, took over her kitchen. So, you know, these are the kind of stories that I grew up with. You're listening to Bernie Suture, and this is Lawson Bader. I took four years of German at a high school, and the reason I did it was not because my family was German, per se, but uh, there was one teacher who was simply fantastic. And if you had her, you were guaranteed to learn something in the four years. I, I had a lifelong fascination with the enemy. I understood that if the Soviet Union was our enemy, then I better know my enemy. And what better way to do that than to actually go there? My German father, or the equivalent of that. With the German family who his teacher set him up with as an exchange student. Had lived during World War II. He was a member of the Hitler Youth. And his wife had grown up in what was then East Germany. And I'll never forget the very first time that they drove me about an hour north towards a town called Lübeck. And we just pulled off on this country road and they owned a small farm and they just wanted to show me this old farm they owned. But they didn't tell me really what was going on. So we simply took a walk through the woods. I all of a sudden emerged into this opening, this beautiful open field. And my eyes all of a sudden adjusted to realization that there's this massive fence in front of me. And they essentially had brought me to the actual border. And it was one of the most powerful moments that I have ever had. Because you have this pastoral setting, quiet. And all of a sudden you have this monstrosity facing you of wires and machine guns and sand pits that had been raked. So that one could see if there were footprints, followed by tank traps followed by these guard towers, and as you looked up at them, you realized they were looking at you. And the contrast of the cow walking by me nonchalantly with this sort of uh, horrible example of human repression just struck me. And my German parents literally didn't need to say a thing. I quit school, I put on a backpack, I went to South Africa, I took a deep breath, and I crossed the border and went into Rhodesia present-day Zimbabwe. He wanted to help fight the communists there, but the will to fight had passed, and a communist named Robert Mugabe got elected. At which point I left Rhodesia and had already dropped the idea of being some kind of mercenary in somebody else's war. Eventually, the arrangements that I had made to possibly buy my way into the Soviet Union as an individual American traveling without a tour group as a backpacker. And I received a telegram, picked it up at the post office in Nairobi, that indeed visas for the Soviet Union had been arranged for me. Here were my trip dates. You know, enjoy. Bernie was only 19 years old. And he thinks that they let him in because he was one of the only people of the era to ask. When you were on the western side, if you literally walked up to the wall and touched it, at that moment in time, you were technically in East German territory. So the wall was actually built somewhere between 6 and 10 feet into East German territory, which meant if you were on the western side touching the wall, they could technically pop through doors that they had uh, placed in various aspects and arrest you for trespassing. And a lot of people found out the hard way. 
you know, after this grand backpacking trip around the world, I couldn't wait to do more. So when I graduated in 1983, I hadn't done what most of my friends did. I wasn't looking for a rung on the corporate ladder. I graduated University of Michigan and I put on my backpack and I wanted to go back overseas again and see more. I you know, woke up one morning in a flat in Berlin and I said, I want to see the wall. And I went as far as I could to the top of the French sector. And I started in the morning and I walked south and it took me the whole day till dark. To walk the entire wall that divided East and West Berlin, 27 whole miles in 14 hours. The force of it, even though I'd read about it and thought about it, the force of this just grotesque division running down the center of a city and understanding that, you know, here I am, a free person on this side of this line, and those poor people over there could never do what I'm doing. For his part, Lawson Bader drove to East Berlin, but to do so, you had to first go through vast swaths of East Germany. You see, Berlin was a divided island in the heart of an ocean of Soviet-controlled East Germany. So you had to go through the commie east to even get to the free sectors of West Berlin. The only way you could drive was through three particular highways that had been constructed by the West Germans, maintained by the East Germans and you had an access point in West Germany, and then you drove all the way to Berlin. And the rules were you had to abide by the speed limit, you could not exit, and you didn't stop for any reason at all. If the car had broke down, that's reason enough, but that was it. And what struck me is, you know, you first drive through, and it doesn't look any different. It's just land and country. And then all of a sudden you realize that you don't see any towns because they were moved off of the highways and then you're through and you're in, and you're struck immediately by how gray everything is. Literally, the buildings lacked color. I was scared myself. I felt compelled to do these things. At the same time, I didn't want to inflict upon my family any more stress. And so I actually constructed an itinerary with plane tickets that took me anywhere away from they would never know which places I was actually going to. And I even asked people to send postcards from destinations like India, which you know seemed less frightening. I actually led a, a tour group who had spent the day in West Berlin, and they were going back into East Berlin because they were going to continue on a tour of areas where the Reformation had occurred. And so I had told this group, you need to understand this idea of no man's land of political rights, that while you have a U.S. passport and that will help in some instances, you really have to obey what the rules are. And the most important rule of any of the crossing was you were never allowed to bring out your camera. And this, of course, is before the days of cell phones and selfies, so it was very obvious if you held a camera. And I had a member of the tour group who was about 82 years old, who was the last person being ushered through, and she was detained because she had chosen to take a picture. And I, feeling responsible, went back to help her, and I actually wound up being arrested because I was trying to defend her. And there is something about having five East German guards who tower over you with 
non-friendly faces and weapons. And they proceeded to detain me for several hours while I was in this no man's land. And after a couple hours, they realized that I was probably not the threat that they perceived and let me go. But there's something about saying that I've been arrested by the East German police that raises a few eyebrows. You think? My eyebrows are raised and more great stories from Americans impacted by the fall of the Berlin Wall and this day in history, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. As always, our This Days in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. More on the Soviet story after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, our final segment in the celebration of the fall of the Berlin Wall. On this day in history, it fell in 1989. As always, our This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And let's return to the rest of our story. It's the beginning of November 1989, and one American that we spoke to, Tony Saliba, happened to be in West Germany for business. I was there with three or four of my staff, and that week the rumor was that something big was going to happen, and my staff was gearing up to go to Berlin and see what was going to happen, and they were begging me to go, and I said, no, I've got too much work to do. (laughs) Here I am on Friday night, the guys board a train from Frankfurt to Berlin and then the news story started coming out about sledgehammers came out they were storming the wall cracking the wall and for we knew it the news was the wall had come down so the guys returned late Sunday night just worn out they hadn't slept and sure enough they came back with a bag full of the wall But I'm thinking about them and saying, well, you guys just opted to be a part of history. And I sat here. I I really felt that I had just missed one of the greatest opportunities in history. You sure did. (laughs) The Berlin Wall is down. The Soviet Union is crumbling. But its vestiges are still alive. Now what? How do the people in all of its territories move forward with their lives? Back to Bernie Sucher, who recalled in earlier moments from the summer of 1983 for his answer. I had decided that I was going to go back. I hitchhiked across the Polish border through the high Tatras near an industrial town called Rujan Berok. And I was picked up by two guys who were driving. And between my German and my Russian, I was able to explain to them what I was doing. And they insisted that I come and spend time with them in Russian Barrack. And so I, I went with them. And they brought me into an apartment building. And they 
brought me into the presence of an older man. And this fellow was someone who had been alive and conscious of the world around him before the communists had taken over Czechoslovakia. And this man asked me to explain to a room that was rapidly filling up with people, like, you know, stuffed with people. And then you could tell there were people in the hallways. I mean, I had drawn a crowd in this horrible little apartment building on like the fifth floor walk up. This man asked me to explain to him who I was and how it was that I'd come there. And at the end of my explanation, which I think was in a combination of German and Russian, he said, and this was being translated for me, he said, I want all of you who can hear me, I want you to listen. What you have in front of you is something that none of you have ever been, something that I was once. There stands in this room a free man. This American knows freedom. His freedom brought him here today. He said, we must have what this man has. We had it once. It's our right. We should have it again. And it was like, well, you can imagine. It's just this extraordinary, chilling cry, like out of the dark. And to be the object of that or the cause of that was just remarkable to me. So to go to answer your question, the Russian people didn't have men like that in 1991. They had people who could dream of such things, but they never had anyone who actually lived the life of that man in Ruzhambarak. So in Eastern Europe, no matter how difficult, no matter how marred by corruption or other challenges, there were enough human beings and enough of the traces of institutions and enough of a cultural memory for people to, with some degree of confidence, set out to return to a world that they felt was their natural place. Open societies, some form of representative politics, and leading to a better quality of life for most people. Russia just didn't have that. And so when I went to Russia, I'm filled with these ideas of you know, doing my personal bid on a private Marshall Plan. You know, I still think that's one of the great opportunities that the United States failed to grasp in the early days of the post-Soviet period for Russia. We could have done so much more. When I went there, you know, I was mostly talking to people about concepts. They, they couldn't comprehend these concepts. They didn't have any references to these concepts in Russia. Uh, we, and it's a big reason because we didn't really understand that because I don't think the Russians appreciated that so much. We have what we have today. Thankfully, those Soviet satellite countries who did have past references to freedom, like Poland, have fared better. And to close, we go back to where we started with Peter Wolf 
who was one of the millions of East Germans who escaped to the free West Berlin and led the Soviets to put the wall up. When we left, my mother said, look, Peter, none of this you will ever see again. You know, none of your friends, your family. And we didn't dare contact any of them because it would have been held against them. You know, if they had contact and communication, which was, of course, intercepted many times with anyone that had escaped, that was a strike against you. So we would have gotten them in trouble by making contact. So we simply stopped everything. You didn't write them. You didn't contact them. Nobody had phones, of course, so you didn't call them. You just stopped at that point and made a new life elsewhere. And fortunately, Peter's mother None of this you will ever see again. was wrong. In 2009, I went back. That was exactly 50 years, almost to the day, 50 years later. I also had a chance to meet up with my classmates completely by accident on the last day that we were in Germany, my son and I went back to my hometown and someone had tried to make contact with one of my classmates and they did and I called my classmate from back then and he was ecstatic to talk to me. He had arranged a dinner that night where we could all meet and we met. Most of my classmates were there to see me. It was unbelievable. Here, 50 years had gone by. At one point, they showed me a little pamphlet of a reunion they had of the class the year before. And they've been having those periodically. And on the last page, it said in memorandum, Peter Wolf. In other words, I was dead. And they told me not to get upset about that, but the communists, two years after I had left, came into the classroom and told everyone that my sister and I had died in a car accident. And that was their way to avoid for any of my classmates to contact me and maybe consider escaping as well. So for 48 years, those friends and classmates had thought I was dead. And I guess I shouldn't be surprised that they all wanted to come to dinner and see me because they probably all thought they're going to see the ghost of Peter Wolf. <laughs> and uh, it was a wonderful reunion. At one point, I asked one of the classmates, I said, look, what was it like these last 40 years that you lived under communism. What was it like? And I guess you could have heard a pin drop. Everybody got very quiet. And then finally one of the people spoke up and with teary eyes he said, Peter, you would have had to live here to know what it was like. And I think I understood what, what he meant. 
In the same breath, he said, Peter, what was it like in America for all these years? So here you have a question of what's freedom like? What are you going to tell him? And at that time, the only thing that I could really muster was uh, you would have had to live there to know what it was like. What a story. And Peter Wolf's story came to us from a great group called Victims of Communism. And Peter does speeches for them, including at colleges and schools across the country. You can check them out at victimsofcommunism.org. The fall of the Berlin Wall, this day in history in 1989. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we often talk about love and also marriage in our regular Marriage on the Mind series. And before both comes dating. And there was a column about dating that really caught our eye. A gentleman named Isaac Huss wrote a very honest piece entitled, A Man's Insecurities in Dating. A perspective, by the way, that we rarely hear, as most men aren't willing to open up about their insecurities or deficiencies. But Isaac did exactly that in this column for Verily Magazine, and he graciously recorded it for us. Let's take a listen. Hi, my name's Isaac. Like many men, I find myself to be, at least from time to time, insecure about being in a relationship with a woman. What are my insecurities? I worry about how I sound when I sing in the shower. I worry that I volunteer too much info about myself. I worry that I'll hit somebody with my car on a date. But, most of all, I worry that I'll suck at love. It's hard for men to admit this stuff. We want to come across like we have it all figured out. Like we are strong enough for the both of us. But in reality, we're dealing with some things internally that inevitably affect our relationships. And... We typically would prefer that nobody know about it, least of all the women in our life. And all men, no matter how confident they appear, are dealing with this. The man you're with is not likely to ever tell you this stuff. But you and I, dear reader, aren't dating. And good can only come from better understanding men in your life and the sort of obstacles they might be dealing with, and by extension you'd be dealing with. The truth is, my singing voice in the shower is the least of my insecurities when it comes to dating women. But I do worry that I'm not particularly good at choosing a partner, that I put too much emphasis on physical attraction, or a magical spark, if you will, or maybe that I'll allow the pendulum to swing too far the other way and find myself with someone I have plenty in common with but whom I'm not attracted to enough. This leads me to avoid commitment more often than I choose to admit. But then there are times when I'm confident in the woman I'm with that I'm worried about other things. Moving too fast into a relationship and scaring someone away. Or moving too slowly and losing someone. 
After polling my friends, I discovered that there is a common underlying fear beneath all our shared concerns. What if I don't have what it takes? Most guys, if not all, struggle with the possibility that someday they simply won't be able to measure up to the challenges that they'll face in a committed relationship. For me, that can mean anything from not making enough money to not being loving or tender-hearted enough when my partner would need me to be. But perhaps the greatest anxiety in this regard is that she'll leave me. Or worse, she'll stay with me, but be miserable as a result. Either way, there's nothing I could do about it. Or so the narrative goes in my head. This anxiety, of course, comes from history. Especially for those of us who have been dumped before, without much of a reason beyond, quote, I'm just not that into you, unquote. Those past experiences can be like dark clouds hovering overhead. Sometimes it's hard to enjoy what's happening because you're afraid it'll all be over in an instant. My buddy Alex puts it this way. Quote, They'll say no one has ever been so fun, interesting, confident, and thoughtful, yet they want to end it. I'm thankful now that I have a girlfriend three months strong, but I still face that demon from time to time, despite her being completely enamored by me. Unquote. Your man is probably not expecting or even needing you to be his savior. In fact, I personally don't want a woman to think I need any special treatment. Frankly, just being aware that a man might have self-esteem issues or questions of self-worth or in his ability to hold up his end of the bargain is a great first step that will be illuminating and helpful in its own right. If a woman is patient and understanding when I make a mistake, that's huge for me. That doesn't mean she can't be mad when I slip up, nor does it mean I make all the mistakes. I just want to know that we're in this thing together, and that my mistakes or shortcomings aren't going to change my standing with her. That will go a long way in helping me feel confident in myself and our relationship, and that will help me be a better man for her. A wise man once said, Perfect love casts out all fear. In my experience, even beyond patience and understanding, the best cure for relationship anxiety is simply love. Resist the temptation to withhold affection or hold grudges against someone because that can really erode a sense of trust and companionship until it becomes a tug of war. Or worse, a competition of manipulation. If you sense that he feels inadequate, show him how much you love him. If you find him fretting about your future together, reassure him by your love. If you have a rough patch, when you've wondered if the spark has faded, fan the flames a little bit. Believe me, your efforts won't go unnoticed. And thank you for sharing that, Isaac. That's a confessional of a sort. Not many men would share it, but we all have it. 
I don't care if you're in the best marriage. On some level, you've got to worry. You don't know. You pray, you hope. Love and perfect love does cast off all fear, but it's the scariest of places. And thank you again, Isaac Huss, Verily Magazine, a man's insecurities in dating. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Go to ouramericannetwork.org for all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. Download what we do, stream it, or go to iTunes. We're there, too. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And on this day in history, in 1942, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in a case called Wickard v. Filburn. This landmark case dramatically expanded what the federal government could regulate as commerce. As always, our This Day in History segments are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all of the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, from philosophy to history, I mean history, history, and all the way across the board to the arts and sports. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you through their terrific and free online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And to learn more about Wickard, we turn to Randy Barnett, director of the Georgetown Center for the Constitution and a professor of legal theory at Georgetown Law. First, we asked Randy to tell us a bit about how things worked in America before this Wickard case was decided. Well, from the founding through the New Deal, it was commonly thought that the federal government only had very limited and enumerated powers, and the great bulk of the regulatory powers of government resided in states. So that began to change as progressives lobbied for um, increasing federal regulation of the economy and other matters, including such matters as, for example, alcohol prohibition. And eventually, this culminated in a series of court cases in which the Supreme Court initially declined to recognize or authorize federal power, but eventually that situation changed, and Wickard versus Filburn is an important part of that change. Then we asked him to tell us a bit about Mr. Filburn himself and how he got involved in this big New Deal Supreme Court case. He was a dairy farmer, and he basically raised chickens um, and cows in order to sell milk and eggs to uh, the local population. (laughs) What happened is the Congress passed what was called the Agricultural Adjustment Act, and it was aimed at supposedly, quote, stabilizing farm prices, uh, which basically means keeping farm prices higher than what the market for farm products was at the time. And they did that by limiting supply of, in this case, wheat, the wheat that uh, Filburn grew on his farm. They could raise the price of wheat by limiting the supply. That would be the way it works. And they did that, and they gave each farmer a quota. Filburn had a quota, and he grew more than his quota. 
he used the, the wheat that he grew to feed his livestock and then sell the proceeds of uh, his livestock to the general public. He also used it for his seed for future years, and he, he used a very small portion of it to feed himself and his family on his property. And he deliberately grew more than his allotted amount in order to provide a test case and challenge the Agricultural Adjustment Act as exceeding Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. Um, and so that's, that's what he did, and eventually the case uh, ended up going into the Supreme Court. Now, if you could smell something funny about the federal government regulating how much a farmer could grow on his own property to take care of his own needs, well, you're not alone. Here's Randy on the interests behind those regulations. The Agricultural Adjustment Act was probably uh, pretty popular amongst farmers because it was meant to raise the prices that they could charge by restricting the supply. And in fact, whether there would be a quota or not be a quota would be determined by a majority vote of the relevant farmers. This was a typical New Deal policy. They did similar things for many industries besides agriculture. And it was a way, in fact, for the Roosevelt administration to benefit business, uh, those businesses that currently exist, at least a majority of those businesses at the expense of the minority, uh, by, in a sense, creating a government cartel in one business after another business. That was the general economic policy of the New Deal. And by the way, what was good for farmers was not good for the American public. I mean, artificially raising prices for poor people and working class poors, that's really difficult. And by the way, as you can tell, many of these arguments, we don't do politics here. This is a this day in history. But many of these discussions are still happening today. Now, of course, not everyone agreed with this government cartel, especially when the Constitution gave the federal government power to regulate commerce among the several states. There were dissenters in, to all these cartels, and Filburn was one of them, and that's why he brought the lawsuit. And so the point of the lawsuit was to say that it doesn't matter if a majority of farmers thinks they benefit by restricting supply so they can charge more. I don't think so, and I'm, I have a right to uh, use my property as I see fit and grow the wheat that I wish to grow to use uh, in order to feed my own livestock. I'm not selling the wheat. Uh, on the interstate market. I'm just using it in my own livestock to run my business. And so I should be entitled to do that. So how did the court decide the case and how did that shape our nation's laws? It was a very difficult case for the Supreme Court. By the time this case was being heard in the 1940s, the court had already reversed some of its earlier rulings that limited federal power and had greatly expanded federal power. It allowed the federal government to regulate not only interstate commerce, which is what the Constitution gives to Congress, it also allowed them to reach inside a state and regulate intrastate activity that was not commerce because that activity had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that basically opened the door to regulating almost anything that was local, uh, provided it could be shown that it, or it could be alleged that it had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that greatly expanded the power of government. In this case, now it's the 1940s, and this this so-called New Deal revolution had already taken place, and the court was almost entirely a product of Roosevelt's Supreme Court appointments. All but one justice had been chosen by him. You would think this would be an easy case, but it turned out to be a difficult case. Why? Because Roscoe Philburn argued that he was not engaged in interstate commerce, and his paltry little farm could certainly have no substantial effect on interstate commerce, what he did was not going to affect interstate commerce at all. 
And so this really was a local matter uh, outside the purview of Congress. And, and the Supreme Court, even in the New Deal cases, it said it is important to distinguish between what's national and what's local. The New Deal Supreme Court said that. And Filburn could reasonably argue what I'm doing is as local as local can get. And as a result, it being such a difficult case, the, c- the court actually couldn't decide the case the first time it heard it. It heard argument in the case, and it deliberated, and it couldn't reach a decision. And finally, it decided to reschedule the case for the following year and hear argument again. What was bothering even these New Deal justices was it looked like if they were going to allow the federal government to reach even a farmer like Roscoe Filburn, then really all limits on federal power were off. And uh, that was a tough, that was something that was tough even for New Deal justices to swallow. So it took them a year to finally decide the case. The Supreme Court ended up solving uh, or addressing the problem by saying that it didn't matter if Roscoe Filburn's wheat was a tiny amount that had no substantial effect on interstate commerce. What mattered is that all similar farmers like Roscoe Filburn, when you aggregate them all together as a group, have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that introduced the so-called aggregation principle into constitutional law, which means that not only may Congress regulate local activity that has a substantial effect on commerce, but it may regulate even trivial instances of local activity as long as it can be categorized as part of a larger group that would have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. And that gave Congress what looked like a pretty much unlimited power to regulate economic matters anywhere in the country. And that is how the case was read or interpreted. It's not actually what the case says, but it is what the case, how the case was read and interpreted and extrapolated for 20 or 30 years after it was decided, and until 1995, in the case of the United States versus Lopez, which involved what's called the Gun-Free School Zone Act, which made it a crime to possess a gun within a, a federal crime to possess a gun within a thousand feet of a, of a school. With the passage of that act in 1995, that became the first law in, I think it was 50 years, that invalidated the law uh, uh, because it exceeded Congress's power under the Commerce Clause. So for all of those years, the court had never seen a law that they thought had gone too far. And then finally, in Lopez, they did uh, find a law that went too far. Um, But they didn't reverse Wickard versus Filburn. They basically said, this is something that goes beyond Wickard. And they said that because in Wickard, they said that involved economic activity. What, What Roscoe Filburn was doing was economic activity. But possessing a gun within a thousand feet of a school is not economic activity. And what a, a five to four majority of the Supreme Court said is that, you know, that's un, there's no precedent for extending Congress's power even to local activity that's not economic. And therefore, they drew the line between local activity that was economic that had a substantial effect on commerce, which Congress could reach under Wickard, and local activity that was not economic, which they said Congress could not reach. And some of the same old arguments today. It sounds familiar, right? Listening to the to the news of the day, the federal power versus the state and local power still playing itself out. It played itself out in the founding of this country. And on this day in history, Wickard v. Filborn was decided in 1942. As always, our This Day in History brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. Go to This Day in History. There's a couple of hundred of them. All brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale.
is Our American Stories, and today we bring you a story our field correspondent Faith picked up while she was back home in California. And here is the first part of that piece. Kathleen Broder grew up in Los Angeles, California, and has lived in California her whole life. She is a 69-year-old retired grade school teacher and has had five children of her own. But Kathleen, she's not your ordinary retiree. She spends most of her time training for and participating in triathlons. A triathlon is a multiple-stage competition most commonly involving swimming, cycling, and running. She races in about seven triathlons a year and runs about, you know, only one or two marathons as well. And at this point, Kathleen has participated in over 50 triathlons. Her obsession? Well, it began with running. Yeah, I was always very hyperactive, you know, it's Kathleen, slow down. Kathleen, don't touch that. Kathleen, I was very hyperactive and so forth. And so um, when I was a young adult, I got into, or before that, uh, before college, I got into running. My first marathon, I was I think I was 28, and I really liked that. And then, you know, so I was running all the time. But then we got married, and I think I was 34 when I had my first baby. And when I got pregnant, you know, some women run through all their pregnancies and everything. I just dropped dead. I mean, I was so exhausted. Um, after a while, you know, when the kids were a little older, I, I got back into it. And then um, I started, um, I think, really getting back into marathons about 10 or 15 years ago. I started really enjoying it again. And it was actually through running that she met her husband, Mike. We met, in, we were in the Santa Monica Track Club. We were just running buddies for a couple years, and then one day Mike said something about, oh, well, it's just about time to settle down, and I said, yeah, me too. Okay, we got married the next month. I mean, we never really dated. We were just friends, and then we got married. <laughs> we had met, and then we really didn't spend much time together, and then we started going to, we would go to races, and we would drive together and so forth, but you know, it was never a dating relationship. It just turned, you know, the relationship changed really fast. And then we got married, we had kids, we had, so two years later we had our first and then we had another one and then we had another one and we just kept having them. So, okay, this is weird. I had listened to this tape thing, cassette tape thing of um, mining your diamonds in your own acre. So it's really funny, you know, like stop looking all over the place, just look around your own area. And I think that kind of tweaked me a little bit. So, yeah, and we were always got along. We both liked classical music and we had a lot of the same friends. And, you know, we were just a gang of single people, adults that we just hung out together. And then all of a sudden, and we lived only a couple blocks from each other. So... You know, sometimes we'd run together, but mostly we'd run together in the track club. You know, and then all of a sudden, we just settled down and got married. So it was running that brought them together. Who needs dating websites when you have running clubs? Most people know that constant running can take quite the toll on your body. And most people Kathleen's age, well, their body starts to give out on them. Knee problems, hip problems, and so on and so forth. 
In order to avoid those issues, Kathleen started to take some precautionary steps, which is how her interest in triathlons got started. I started realizing that a lot of my friends, you know, their knees started going and they started complaining and I had fewer and fewer running friends. I thought, oh, that's me. I better cross train. I started swimming a little bit and bike. I already had a bike, but I was biking a little bit, not too much. And then my son and I were up in Carpinteria and we were camping. And this was about eight or nine years ago. And we saw this thing called, I had never seen a triathlon. And I couldn't believe it. I, I saw it and I said, I'm going to do that. And I, I was talking to all the people, well, what comes first and why does it in that order? And I was just kept, I was fascinated. And so um, I immediately signed up for swim lessons. I mean, I knew how to swim, but, you know, real, real swimming. I bought a steel bike. I didn't know what kind of bike to buy, but I bought one online. So the next year, I did the Carpinteria Triathlon. I probably was the last one to finish because I had—I didn't even know how to shift the gears on the bike. The swim was so scary, and and then you know the run was fine. And I thought, oh yeah, I'm a tri- triathlete, and I thought that would be it. But something—I just kept—I just enjoyed it so much. So then I joined um, this swim group out at CLU. And they were starting a triathlon club, and so I started working out with them. And of course, and then I had to get a better bike, and it just took over. <laughs> and so I wasn't retired yet, but I, school became less and less of a priority. And so I started realizing, I don't really have time to go to work. I have too many workouts, and you know that's why I retired. Besides the fact that Mike kept telling me I was stupid for working because I could make just as much money on my retirement, so I thought, and he had already been retired for so long. So I thought, okay. And that was when her triathlon career took off. She began with some shorter races before diving headfirst into the longer ones. I started doing the little sprint triathlons. Those are the short ones. The problem with those is that those depend on mostly on speed and I'm not fast I just have a lot of endurance you know I was I did okay but those were kind of scary because you know things go flying and just have to always keep going so then a couple years after I started I started doing the Olympic ones and I liked that a lot more three years ago I started doing the half Ironman and I really really liked those because I was really competitive that's when I got really competitive A half Ironman triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, a 56-mile bike ride, and a 13.1-mile run. And this year, Kathleen qualified for the World Championship for the half Ironman. The last several years, this race has taken place far away, such as Austria and Australia. This year, she will be running in Chattanooga, Tennessee. There are a number of other races that Kathleen has ran as well such as some popular ones, like the Boston Marathon. Kathleen has ran the Boston Marathon three times. She will be running it again this year, beating her qualifying time by 24 minutes. How could she do that? What's this woman's training philosophy? A slow, steady pace with a lower heart rate allows an endurance athlete to train longer and more often without stress or injury. Obviously, Kathleen is not your typical triathlete. But what does a typical training week look like for her? I'm getting tired even thinking about it. 
Does this woman take any rest days? But I really listen to my body and I can tell, like I did a, a century, uh, a hundred mile bike ride on Saturday. And it was very hilly and solving. And um, I could tell, so I was supposed to, in my brain, I was going to run on Sunday and I didn't. And on Monday I have two groups that I swim with, two different ones. One in the morning at six and one at um, six, seven o'clock at night. And I was supposed to run in the middle of the day and I didn't because I could tell I was worn down. So I did a bike ride today, but it wasn't, it was like 30 miles. It wasn't that big a deal, but it was just to, you know, kind of get, get back. The days that I take off every once in a while, you know, life happens. Somebody gets sick or I get sick or that might be a day that I, that I take off but I don't work it into my schedule. I either, there's something always happening. I usually do two things a day, but um, sometimes like um, if it's my long run day, you know, I won't, I probably won't do anything else except run. And when we come back, more from Kathleen Broder, 30 mile bike ride, not a big deal. A big deal for everyone in this studio, that's for sure, me included. Actually, a one-mile bike ride right now in my present condition would be a really big deal. When we come back, more with Faith and Kathleen, a 69-year-old triathlete who's making us all here in the studio look, well, just plain silly. This is Our American Stories, and we continue Faith Garcia's conversation with a 69-year-old triathlete named Kathleen Broder. And by the way, what's so fascinating about this lady is she had never heard of a triathlon. And then when she heard what it was, which is a mile-plus swimming, a long, long bike ride, and a very long run, she thought, hey, let me give that a shot. Let's continue with their conversation. So you work out like two or three times a day? Yeah, I'm not allowed. I don't let myself work out three times a day. <laughs> you don't let yourself? I don't, no, I, well, the only time I do that is on Thursdays because I swim at um, six in the morning and then I meet my friend at, uh, afterwards at 7.30 at the park and we usually ride down to Zuma and back. But she has a coach that makes her run after her bike. And so sometimes in support, I will... Um, <laughs> I will um, run with her afterwards. And the hard part about that is that on Wednesdays, I swim at lunch, and then Wednesday nights, I have track. And then Thursday morning, I have swim, and then I bike with her, and then sometimes I run. So I am, Thursdays are a really hard day. Now that all adds up to about 18 to 20 hours a week. Basically a part-time job. Of course, with that kind of exercise, she needs to refuel herself. And during the races, you will catch her downing those awful goo packets. But her signature snack are those tiny little peanut butter crackers that she munches on during the biking part of her races. And of course, when she's not racing, she gets hungry too. Obviously, if you work out two or three times a day, I like constantly. Are you always hungry? Um, I am 
and I really try I really try to catch it before I get starving or else I'll eat something, you know, like Carl's Jr. or something. I try to always, you know, to have stuff. I pretty much eat anything and most of my friends are real, you know, vegan maniac people. You know, some people eat only raw foods and some, you know, they have all kinds of these crazy things. But I don't do any of that because it's not like I'm training for the Olympics or something. I eat a lot, but for when I'm working, if I'm coming up on a race, a couple days before, I start eating a lot more simple carbohydrates because you want to, you don't want a lot of that, of the stuff in your system. You know, you want it to kind of get through. And so I'll eat more like, you know, white rice and I won't eat any fresh vegetables. I won't eat um, any heavy meats or anything like that, and especially the night before. And then in the morning, I have you know, I have the banana and oatmeal, and I usually eat on the way to the race. And you know, there's just certain things that you do. For anyone who runs races or competes in triathlons, they know that bodily functions, well, they can make the race a little more uncomfortable than it already is. The last really stupid thing I did was um, it was at the Oceanside 70.3 last year and the wait to get into the water was so long and I had a water bottle with me because sometimes you know you get in that ocean water you get very thirsty and you can't drink anything and you're in there for a long time. So I was so I had a water bottle. I drank a whole water bottle while standing in line and then I was swimming but you can't, unless you stop and relax, you can't pee. <laughs> and so I was in such pain because I didn't want to stop because I had all these people behind me. And, um, and it, I, just, I, I just died. So, you know, eventually I got out and it was okay. But, um, because you was, had to pee. Yeah, it was because you can't really, you can't swim at the same time. I mean, because you're not relaxed if you're swimming. And so, you know, just to tread water and people swim over your head. And so <laughs> that was really all. That was the worst thing. Kathleen, she works out with all different types of groups. Of course, there are very few people her own age in these groups. She is often much faster than people 30 years younger than her because her running endurance is so high. Typically, she said her swim is her worst event. Her biking is good, but then she really catches people on that run. And at 69 years old, going on 70, she puts young guys in their 20s to shame. It's funny because even my swim coach will say, he'll point to me and say, see the woman, she's a real athlete. You know, he's always saying these things about me. It's so embarrassing. But, you know, I really don't think about it and I don't really compare myself. And, the, and I do know other people who are, you know, my age and much faster. But I do know there's not very many of them. You know, and there aren't, and the older I get, you know, like I'm going into this 70 to 74, that's the age category for triathlons that I'm in now. A lot of times, like this weekend, I'm doing a try and I'm the only person in my age category. So it's like kind of relaxing. It's like, all right, this is great. But, you know, I still want to do well. Yeah, I don't know. I really can't wrap my head around that because I think because I work out with so many people who are younger, I just enjoy, I enjoy that. I have a hard time being around people my own age. I like being around kids, people my kids' age, you know, that, that kind of thing. And that's who, I, that's who I'm with. I really enjoy. And I think 
I think I think they're I'm like them, but when they're looking at me, they're looking at their grandmother. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's pretty funny, but I just enjoy that. And the older people that do I do work out with, I mean, a lot of them are in their 60s. You know, there are some. We're all kind of the same. You know, we all enjoy being with all ages, and and um, you know, we're pretty much you know we do the same kind of stuff. There are some who are very, very competitive and, you know, it's like killer and, you know, and then they take it a lot more seriously. But I think a lot of us, most of us have been very active our whole lives, you know, either marathoners or something, you know, you don't come into something like an endurance, um, you know, kind of a, an activity out of, out of the blue, you know, you've done something for several years or it's a personality type. I think it's per a lot of it's personality. When I'm out there, it's like, you know, sometimes I'm kind of amazed that I'm out there too and that these people, you know, like I'm passing this guy that's 24 years old. <laughs> Especially on the bike. I mean, seriously, this last weekend when did this century in solving, it was, it was hilly. It wasn't horrible. There were so many guys carry, or just walking their bikes up these hills. And I mean, I was in my, you know, my easiest gear, but I'm like, mm. You know, good morning, good morning. I'm still going in there. I'm passing them up and all this. But what they do, guys, they power through at the beginning, not realizing you can't do that when you're running, you know, riding 100 miles. <laughs> so that's how you beat out a lot of the guys is by Well, they're stupid. Yeah, yeah, they're stupid. Yeah, and a lot of them are heavy. Some You can't always tell because some of these heavy people are, are very strong, especially in the swim, my gosh huge people that are so fast in the water. But bike on a hill and you're heavy, you gotta work a lot harder. And then the run too, so. But of course, not every experience has been great for Kathleen. She has fallen off her bike and gotten a concussion. She has broken her collarbone, gotten plantar fasciitis, and even tripped while running and broken her hand. As you can tell Kathleen though, she's a pretty intense person. And it is hard for her to stop. She once told me a story about a race she finished where it was so cold she had hypothermia. But she was so out of her head that she just kept on going. Talk about endurance. Kathleen Broder at 69 years old is definitely an anomaly. But of course, she will not always be able to be this active. But for now, she's just incredibly grateful and enjoys what she is able to do. I would never just sit still. I would always be doing, you know, some kind of an activity. It doesn't have to be an athletic thing because I do. I love to play cards. I love to play board games, so I can do that. But I would just want to have nice people, active people, not, not real old people. <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I consider myself so lucky to be able to do all this. And one of my friends the other day said um, that I work out, my training partner said, that she never goes on Facebook because it makes her feel bad because she sees all this stuff that other people are doing that she's not doing. And I started thinking about that and thinking, I just feel so fortunate because um, I think, you know, I worked a long time and, you know, I loved my job, but, you know, I enjoy so much what I'm doing now. And I have my bike group, groups, and I have my triathlon groups, and I have my swim groups, and I have my running groups, and there's a totally different people in all of them. There's some crossover, but not a lot. So I feel really fortunate because I have a lot of people to 
hang out with and stuff. Yeah, and you're fortunate because like to have your body in such good like yeah. condition that it's not you know breaking down on you. Yeah, and, and you know what? If it does break down, I'm ready. I mean, you know, <laughs> I can do, I can do other things. I mean, you know, if I broke my leg. You know, I've had to come back from injuries and stuff, so I don't think it wouldn't be the end of the world. I would, I would just do something else. But you know, I enjoy that. That's why I'm, I feel fortunate now. So this is just something you like doing for it's now. Just, yeah. And what a great piece! Thanks so much for that, Faith and Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old triathlete. I just wrote a few notes down. I love that she said, "I have a hard time being around people my own age." Well, I'd have a hard time around being around you. Kathleen, you'd exhaust me. She said she eats constantly. Well, we eat constantly here at Our American Stories, too. We just never even move our bodies. This is Our American Stories, the story of Kathleen Broder, a 69-year-old lady who decided, well, I'm going to do this thing called the triathlon. And by the way, a triathlon is a 1.2-mile swim, then a 56-mile bike ride, and then a 13-mile run. Give that a shot on your day off. This is Our American Stories.